I'm Omer, one of the pastors here at Spark, and uh, as Pastor Tom mentioned earlier, we're in the middle of the Gospel of John. Um, If you don't know or haven't been a part of the series uh, so far, which is totally fine, we're in the part of the Gospel of John where we're we're still in the thick of Jesus's ministry, like right in in the middle of that space. And uh, the tension is mounting with, with every narrative we uncover, every uh, dialogue uh, that Jesus engages in. Um, things are heating up. And the Gospel of John is ultimately in a few chapters, uh, heading towards basically the last week or so of Jesus's life, where obviously he'll, he'll engage in confrontations uh, that have uh, irrevocable consequences. So where we are right now is actually in um, the, the second of the seven I am statements that uh, interpreters have called out as occurring in the Gospel of John. So we're, we're on number two to you're keeping track or keeping score uh, as we go through this. The, so, uh, it, yeah, and again, this fits into this theme of uh, Jesus debating with the Jewish leaders uh, and uh, a community of people surrounded uh, in those debates. Uh, and uh, and th- this is where the text that we're discussing today occurs. So let's get into it. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies for myself, my other witness is the Father who sent me. So it is in uh, th- this discussion uh, causes a, a great amount of, of debate uh, among the Jewish leaders and a, and a, a variety of reactions for, for the audience that's listening. So really what we're going to focus on today is what it means for Jesus to make that kind of claim, to say, I'm the light of the world, and why that would have been so controversial for him to say, and what the implications are for those of us uh, who follow in Jesus's footsteps. If, you, um, if you're familiar with that phrase, um, and even maybe familiar with some of the different ways that Bible writers talk about uh, the light uh, of Jesus or being in the light, then you would get the, the impression that to some extent, to, you know, the, there's some component of Jesus's light that has to do with, uh, like, it's almost like a kind of purity, right? Like you are in the light or you are in darkness. It's often presented as a binary, right? You can be in either the one or the other. You can follow the one or the other. And often there's language that is associated with, uh, that connects that to salvation, right? To be saved is to be in the light, to not be in the light is to be lost in darkness. That is language uh, that we have often used uh, over the centuries uh, to, to describe it. So there's this, this uh, dichotomy between light and dark, saved and lost, pure and impure. Um, I think we, we as a culture, too, have really run, leaned into this aspect of what it means to, to talk about uh, being in the light, right? So, like, this is, we often do understand or think of uh, being in the light as being in what is true uh, and being in, uh, being in the darkness is evil or being with what is false. 
Um, and really, like even, you know, there's like corporate lingo that talks about sunshining uh, mistakes. I don't know if you all are familiar. It, it's like a Silicon Valley uh, lingo about exposing or bringing light to mistakes that people have made to learn from, uh, from for everybody to learn from, from those mistakes. And uh, really, they're, you know, you know, they're like, if you think about um, even like our cultural mythologies and stories, like around vampires, for example, right? Like the, especially for the vampire tradition in the West that is very much influenced by historic interpretations of light and dark, you get these ideas that, you know, vampires represent darkness. In fact, they are literally repelled by the light, right? That's often, like, that is a, a consistent theme. And there's often, like, religious symbols and elements that go with them being repelled by the light, like their skin would burn uh, if they were exposed to the light. With, of course, the, the, really the only big exception to that, or the biggest exception to that in, uh, in modern history being uh, the Twilight Saga, where the light was uh, not because uh, the vampires were sinful, but it was actually they were avoiding light um, because their skin became so beautiful in the light that it, that, that could actually repel humans and cause trouble. So it's actually not uh, because of vampire sinfulness, but vampire hotness. It was Robert Pattinson's hotness that was, he was sparing us from, uh, from dealing with that. But of course, he, he backed out on sparing us from that because now we have emo Batman. He's, he's right back in, uh, in drawing us into that light. How about that for a contrast? Those are, that's a light and dark version of Robert Pattinson and both are, I think, equally uh, appealing. So, uh, you know, but this, again, overall, you know how, like, how these stories that we tell ourselves about what it means to be in the light. I'll move off that slide. Let's not distract any of us here. So the, one of the things that we're going to have to talk about is that when Jesus describes himself as the light of the world, like we talk about with uh, so many of the other claims that Jesus is make, uh, makes about himself, there's a long history of that title or that phrase that predates Jesus. And it's best for us, if we want to truly unpack what it means for Jesus to call himself the light of the world— to follow through on that history, to understand where Jesus's people would have been coming from for him to use that phrase. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the, the first. Our first part is really to just anchor ourselves on what, uh, what Jesus's listeners would have had in their minds when Jesus brought that up. And to understand that, we're going to start with a different title, one that uh, occurs in, in biblical interpretation called The Suffering Servant, okay? So The Suffering Servant is a figure uh, that occurs throughout the, the book of Isaiah. So the book of Isaiah is a book uh, in the Bible centuries before Jesus that tells where it's a, it's a prophetic voice that's really... Uh, couple, like multiple voices that are speaking from the perspective of Israel becoming corrupt and losing their foothold on their land, entering into a devastating captivity. So that's one perspective, like one aspect of the story. And then also there's a perspective within the book of Isaiah later in the book that tries to put the pieces back together from captivity and think what's, what is next for the story of God's people? What is the way forward through this devastating captivity? And it's in that second part of the, the, the uh, voice within Israel, the part where they're devastated in captivity, trying to understand 
how God can pick up the pieces from what has been broken and how Israel could one day experience the beautiful promises of restoration that God had promised Israel from the beginning. So it's in that second part that there are interspersed among many beautiful visions of what restoration will look like when God restores Israel. They're interspersed servant songs or suffering servant songs. So these are four poems that occur in the book of Isaiah in that last, in the second section of the, the book of Isaiah that, that uh, enigmatically talk about a figure that is a part of the restoration process for Israel, part of the way forward. But that figure must go through devastating rejection, humiliation, and suffering. And it is somehow through that suffering that Israel will gain their restoration, right? So you uh, are probably familiar, like the most famous uh, portion of the Suffering Servant song is one that is often, or that is uh, historically attributed to Jesus, right? So this, this comes from one of the servant songs. It says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You read that passage, and you probably think, yeah, that's about Jesus. In fact, I don't know how it can be about anybody other than Jesus. And we've talked about this a little bit at Spark before, where one of the challenges with that perspective is no one in the original audience or in the centuries after this text formed was thinking that this was applying to Jesus, one, because he didn't exist yet, but also because they didn't even have an idea that this was describing a messianic figure, like one individual through which Israel and God's people and people all over the world would experience salvation. Like if I asked you, who would this have been talking to, or like where, you know, what the original audience would have thought of, like who, the, who they're describing here, do you even know? It's very hard because we have Jesus-centric lens and it's so easy to say, that's Jesus. I can't imagine who else it would be. And that's great with uh, our uh, retrospect uh, that, that we have. But in this, like in the original context, the way that this text was understood was really, and you, you can see the interpretive flow of these, of servant songs like these, where the, the servant itself was actually, it was a righteous portion of Israel, the portion of Israel that even though Israel was systemically corrupt and unjust, and therefore they lost their foothold on the land and were devastated uh, by their, at their surrounding enemies, in large part because they tried to be like their enemies and in so doing succumb to the same kinds of things that uh, Israel's enemies always succumb to as well. In, uh, throughout all of that, there was this idea that even if it looks like Israel is totally lost. It's not actually true. There is a remnant, a portion of Israelites who, who are faithful. They will stay true to God no matter where they are, whether they're in Babylon, exile, captivity, wherever they are, they will stay true. And, it, and because of that, God will continue to be able to work through Israel and God will fulfill God's promises through that righteous remnant, that righteous group of people that hang on. And so in that sense, this suffering servant was never in the original context supposed to be one individual person. In fact, this collective approach that it is through this individual 
that God is able to do great things, uh, or through this, sorry, this individual that represents a collective, that God is able to do great things, is actually a big part of uh, Israel's history of interpretation, right? So they, they uh, you know, we, uh, in the beginning of the biblical narrative itself, God chooses humanity, uh, Adam and Eve as they're construed in the story, to, to uh, cultivate and protect the sacred space of earth. That is what they're, they're called to do. Um, God chose Abraham and his descendants to be a blessing to all the nations. God chose Israel uh, to be the means through which the world would experience salvation. So in that sense, thinking of the suffering servant as a, as a collective of Israel makes a lot of sense. And that it's in those suffering servant songs with that kind of perspective that we get this phrase, light of the world or light of the nations, the way the, way the, the servant songs construe it. So here in one of the servant songs, it says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So even then, can you imagine being in Israel's situation, being in exile, being devastated, not being able to imagine how something so broken could be put back together. There is a promise, never lose a sight of the goal, that no, not only will you be put back together, but you will be the ones through which I will put together everything in the world, right? The narrative never loses sight that that's where the story is headed. Now, by the time you get to Jesus's day, what Jesus does is he takes this collective focus and brings the attention directly to him, saying that the one, there's one true representative of Israel through which God is doing all of these things that God promised God would do. One that would fail or one that would succeed where everybody prior to, to him has failed. That's where Jesus is coming from when he says that he is the light of the world. So when we often say, like, we think of light of the world as salvation, it's about going to Jesus, being saved in Jesus. There's really an element of the story here that that perspective overlooks or falls short of to say that really the light is something that goes out. It goes out into the world. It expands out. It includes everybody. That is the force of, what, uh, of where Jesus is taking this statement here. So there is an, uh, you can see the way that uh, early New Testament followers of Jesus, the way they take this a step forward. So, so this is where the Apostle Paul, in the book of Acts, as part of the narratives, he actually describes him and his, his uh, colleague Barnabas's work, and meaning like the, the work of, uh, of, of doing Jesus stuff. He says, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the nations that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The twist that's happening here is that Paul is saying, we, he's saying that command of being a light to the nations, that's not just Jesus. It is not just about Jesus. Jesus is not the only suffering servant in this. In fact, that's on all of us. We are all collectively the ones through which God is accomplishing God's goals. And so part of, again, a part of this narrative that we can get tripped up on when we think about being in the light is this idea that we've been alluding to so far about being chosen, right? So this, uh, God chose humanity in Adam and Eve uh, in the garden. God chose Abraham. God chose Jesus. God chose the followers of Jesus. And often when we talk about these kinds of terms, 
uh, which do occur uh, throughout uh, New Testament writing, we again think of the, like the special feeling or the special uh, status that we get to have being elect or being predestined, being, being like, like the special um, exclusive group uh, of people who are in the light and not, uh, not in the darkness. But again, that, even though that, that perspective on what it means to be predestined is pervasive, it actually really uh, falls short of this idea that really what like we are chosen as a collective, we're chosen as followers of Jesus, and it is not being chosen uh, from the world, like to be taken out of it, to be saved, but it's really a push in a different direction. Chosen from, like chosen out of, is how we often talk about this narrative and it comes from places like this, right? So, like, so um, there is a, a letter in the New Testament that is attributed to Paul, where this is this is what uh, Paul is saying: "Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For God chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in God's sight. In love, God predestined us to be adopted children through Christ because of God's love." It's statements like this that often, like, you know, that, that feed into uh, the idea or give fuel to, like, some people to get the idea that, yeah, what, what it means to be predestined is to be chosen, to be special, to be called out from, uh, from the surrounding world. There's a, there's a shortcoming in that approach, like having that kind of uh, interpretation. And really, uh, I think like a lot of, if you see a lot of language that's associated with like, oh, be, like being predestined, being chosen, it means like your, your salvation is a gift and there is nothing that is expected of you for receiving that gift. That is the idea, right? It's all, it's all on God. You, you don't have to do anything uh, about it or in response to it. Thankfully, I think there's been a lot of good scholarship, uh, especially over the last few decades, that has really highlighted how that is, uh, that's more of like a modern Western way of approaching it, as if grace means uh, you know, uh, something that never requires uh, or never uh, beseeches anything in response. So here's how a Bible scholar who, who's an expert uh, in this area said, um, we, have, we have acquired the modern notion of a pure gift with no strings attached. So this is talking about what it means to, like, for God's grace to save us. But I think it is increasingly recognized now that this is a very modern, indeed modern Western notion, and not one that is shared in antiquity or in most non-Western cultures. And which hearing this, Asian Christian parents all around the world rejoice, saying, I told you that I am right to expect a return on my investment for sacrificing myself in parenting you. But, you know, that, that obviously that can get toxic in many different ways. But it does speak to this reality that this, like, the idea that what, you know, to be chosen or to be saved by God is to not need, uh, like, not uh, be, be freed from having any kind of response or obligation uh, as a result of that. It's not really a perspective that Bible writers would have been coming from. So really there's this twist that a fuller picture of what it means to be chosen or elect is to actually think about it as being chosen for, chosen for a purpose. And Ephesians, that letter that we just read, actually ties it, it connects this idea of being chosen from to being chosen for. It fleshes out this idea, right, that with great power comes great responsibility that we've all uh, seen, like, it, again, it permeates our culture. But that is the idea here, right, that if you have been given power, if you are blessed 
There is something that comes with that, and that is what we that is what it means to actually be a part of God's family. So here's how Ephesians, just a chapter later, will break it down. It, is, it will say, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, right? Like we commonly understand it. Not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork. Here's the other part, though. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So when we talk about Jesus being the light of the world, Jesus being the suffering servant, Jesus being the source of our salvation, in that thread is always the idea that we too are a part of that story. And our response is supposed to look like what Jesus's response is to sin and suffering and death and evil in the world. And if that sounds, uh, so the, uh, th- this type of perspective really is not just um, one that you know occurs in the New Testament. The the uh, tradition of interpreters have followed through on this for centuries following, and then really in the early church they anchored on this idea that you know power and privilege is something that God has given us for the sake of other people, and they say it in a way that really you know you we can look back on it, especially for those of us um, who operate in wealthy Silicon Valley, upper middle class circles, where we often try to think about how on earth do we square our lives with the, uh, the injustice and poverty that exists in the world. Here are some reflections that different uh, early church uh, people uh, offered to really uh, sharpen this point. So this is actually from a document that all, it was actually a runner-up in some canon lists to make it into the New Testament in the early church. So here from the Didache, it says, share everything with your brother or sister. Do not say it is private property. If you share what is everlasting, you should be that much more willing to share things which do not last. There's a, um, a, a couple centuries later, Ambrose of Milan said, you are not making a gift of your possession to the poor person. You are handing over to them what is theirs. Building on that too, Basil of Caesarea said, the bread in your cupboard belongs to the hungry one. The coat hanging in your closet belongs to the one who needs it. The shoes rotting in your closet belong to the one who has no shoes. The money which you put into the bank belongs to the poor. You do wrong to everyone you could help, but fail to help. John Chrysostom, a famous preacher in the 4th and 5th century, said, Not to enable the poor to share in our goods is to steal from them and deprive them of life. The goods we possess are not ours, but theirs. You see how they are, they are leaning in to this idea that to be blessed by God, to have power, to have privilege, means that that power and privilege and those blessings exist for the sake of those who don't have that, the, all of those rich things. Now, if that sounds uh, extremely difficult for us to live up to, it is. I mean, that's the, that's the reason that it can be so offensive to people to hear today, for us to try to live up to, and why it can be so challenging for even Jesus's original audience back then. And it's not a coincidence, then, that the, uh, this idea of being a blessing for the sake of the world through God is associated with the suffering servant, an idea that it comes through pain and sacrifice that we're able to do those things. 
There's a, and so, you know, there, the uh, discussion in, uh, that Jesus is having with, um, with the Jewish leaders takes this next phase, which will highlight just how difficult it is to live through to this. So it goes, once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jewish leaders ask, will he kill himself? Is that what he says? Where I go, uh, you cannot come. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. They have not left me alone, for I always do what pleases them. Even as he spoke, many believed in them. Uh, many believed in him. So here is the, the idea that it is somehow, mysteriously, just like the suffering servant, it is through Jesus being lifted up, which of course, you know, the way that that plays out in the gospel is Jesus being humiliated, lifted up on the cross, and executed. That's what he got for his message of being the ones through which God will redeem the whole world. That's what, it, that's what happens when he brought attention to what sacrificial love really looks like and the prominent role that that's going to play in the coming kingdom. And if that sounds impossible to do, the Gospel of John recognizes that that is impossible to do. In fact, this is the, it makes it even more challenging later when, when Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Here, we were just thinking, I don't even know how to do a quarter of the works that Jesus did. And here is Jesus saying, no, 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 we're going to do even greater things than that. And you think, how on earth is that possible? Just a few verses later, uh, within the same context, Jesus will say, but you know the spirit who is within you and will keep on living in you. The, what Jesus is doing in this narrative is actually saying like, yeah, it's, it's harder than you could possibly imagine, but you have the spirit of God coursing through your veins to propel you to do these supernatural things. And somehow, mysteriously, Jesus is saying that it's through his execution and humiliation and resurrection and ascension and dispatching of this Holy Spirit to us that we will be able to do even greater things that Jesus, than Jesus could do when he lived on earth. The reason that God's people can live up to this calling is precisely because we have God's spirit. And Jesus says that he will send us that spirit. And it's through love and sacrifice and spirit that we're even able to fathom that we can be a greater force for good in this world than Jesus was in his own life. The James Webb Telescope, if you've been seeing images from it uh, lately, has, uh, I think for a lot of people, including me, causes, uh, it, it causes complex emotions in people. And you can be like, I don't understand how looking at a bunch of stars can cause uh, such complex emotions, to which I say, you're not looking at the stars correctly. They, when I see these kinds of images, I go through this thing where my heart aches and I feel like my brain is going to explode to fathom how far and distant and expansive this universe is, and to simultaneously think that the stuff 
that makes up that universe is the same stuff that is inside my body that makes up me, the same molecules and atoms. It is on a scale. I, sometimes I want to vomit when I think about that kind of stuff, or I want to cry or praise God for what is happening. It is so big and so small at the same time, so far and so close. And what the gospel of John is actually doing is it is portraying Jesus very much in that way as well. You would think that with all of the gospel of John's talk that we've been hearing week after week after week about Jesus being one with God and Jesus being from heaven, not from here like the rest of us are, you would think that would create an impassable distance between us and Jesus to say there's no way that I could be identified with him if this is where he comes from. You would think that, but the gospel of John over and over and over says no, that is not an impassable distance. In fact, it is that same Jesus who is so much closer than you think, because what Jesus is doing is inviting us into his mission. It's Jesus saying in the gospel of John that his mission is our mission. It is in that space between where Jesus is pulling the cosmos together, uniting God's space and our space. And that's why he can say, you'll do even greater things than these. It's because Jesus says, my mission is your mission because my father is your father. My spirit is your spirit. My house, he will say later in the gospel, is your house. And here he says, my light is your your light. And that is how we can bridge that chasm between what God wants to do in the world and where we are in the world right now. There's one more point of of, uh, solidarity that Jesus has with us uh, that we have actually also talked about in the Gospel of John, and it connects to what we're about to do together in communion, where Jesus also says, my body is your body. When we partake of communion together and remember and celebrate Jesus' body and his blood, we become a part of him in a unique, special way. And we are continuing the work that Jesus did in that process together. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.